You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Sam. You're about to listen to episode 116 of Wheel Bearings, which Rebecca and I recorded on the rooftop of the One Hotel Brooklyn Bridge this past weekend. At the end of our conversation, make sure you stay, keep listening because I've added on the recording of a roundtable session that Rebecca participated in on Saturday afternoon with Alan McNish. Alan is current is a three-time Le Mans 24-hour winner and is currently running the Audi Sport Apt Scheffler Formula E team, and he gives some great insights into the strategy for uh, the drivers and teams in Formula E. So enjoy the show. All right, welcome to episode 116 of Wheel Bearings. I'm Sam Abul Salmon from Navigant Research, and I'm Rebecca Lindland from RebeccaDrive.com. And Rebecca, we are sitting here across from each other today on a nice, beautiful early morning in Brooklyn, right next to the East River, overlooking Manhattan. And back behind us here is uh, the site of the, uh, the 2019 New York E-Prix, uh, the Formula E-Race, which is the grand finale of the 2018-2019 season. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, before we do that, what have you been driving? So this week I had the 2019... Toyota 4Runner, and I actually had the TRD off-road pro spec, like totally tricked out from a visual standpoint. <laughs> uh, you know, it had all the features that you would possibly want in an off-road vehicle. It had roof rack. It had big fat tires on it. Off-road tires. Off-road like tires, and you know, it looked looked fantastic it was really really cool and i actually had to drive it about three hours north to boston for the july 4th celebrations and then i drove it back the next day and i was really pleasantly surprised at how comfortable it was because it was a lot of driving it was it was it ended up to be uh, just over 500 miles and it's a know, long way to go in, in a vehicle of that type well exactly and you know it was a really stripped down bare bones version it didn't even have auto AC. It didn't have any of any of the new systems, safety systems. No blind spot monitoring. Uh, you know, it had it had a screen that was just only slightly larger than my actual phone. <laughs> and, you know, so it was kind of cool to have this 
back to basics vehicle, but to have it really perform really, really well on the road and actually be comfortable to drive. It also swallowed up two gigantic upholstered chairs with no problem, which was great. And, you know, it was a little high, honestly, it was, it was rather high for me to get into. As people know, I'm only five feet tall. So it, from that standpoint, you know, it, it probably wouldn't be an ideal vehicle for people on the shorter side. Did it have running boards? It did not have running boards. And, you know, I kind of had to hoist myself up via the steering wheel. I, and then kind of, you know, leap down just a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, you know, I, unfortunately I didn't get a chance to take it off road because it is incredibly capable. It had, you know, the low gear range and such. Uh, This one had the 4.0 liter displacement and a V6 engine. I believe I got about 18 miles per gallon, which it's not, that's not a terrible number given the nature of this type of vehicle because things like those off-road tires, yes. they're, they're not exactly low rolling resistance. Exactly. Those, those put a lot of extra drag on the vehicle, plus being up high. Is they, also they do, right, worse. exactly. So, you know, you, you don't have great aero. I mean, I think that it was, from an off-road capability standpoint, it's probably fantastic. I was just very pleasantly surprised at how well it performed in that kind of, in a function that it's not totally designed for yeah you know so it still makes a decent daily driver absolutely absolutely and with all that off-road capability it definitely got a lot of looks you know there were people that would stop turn around you know definitely want to check it out and they were surprised that it was that it was the forerunner because it looks really different and much beefier looking than others you know it had cool black matte black accents to it uh and just overall, you know, the seats were pretty easy to put down. The functionality of it was incredible. Again, this one was very bare bones. My issue with the fact that it was very bare bones, but it was $46,000. And for that off-road capability. Well, I mean, it's like, at least give me auto HVAC. You know, I'm trying to adjust everything. Do they they offer auto climate control on other trims of the... Yes. So, so, oh yes, for sure. Yeah. Okay. I think, I, I believe so. I mean, I think that I they see, have. I seem to recall the last time I drove one, it had that. Yeah. I, they, there's others, you know, like to, typical Toyota, they offer a bunch of different trims on this. And so you can kind of customize it to the way that you want. This just happened to be the one that I had as, you know, as the media car. So I think that it's something that people, you know, there's seven different models of it. I think that people can find exactly what they want. The TRD Pro starts at 46,815. I want to say that mine ended up at about 48 and change, uh, somewhere in, in there. But again, I unfortunately didn't get to do things like the Hill Start Assist Control. Um, I didn't get to experience the locking differential, things like that, you know, that are fantastic for that type of capability. You didn't so. use the, the low, four-wheel drive low range for navigating Boston potholes? You know, unfortunately, I did not. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about, you know, I mean, a lot of times, you know, these, these off-road tuned vehicles like the TRD Pro and, you know, high, you know Wrangler Rubicon, things like that, the, the ride quality often suffers when you're driving, you know, especially on less than ideal roads. Right. How was the... And that's, that's what was... I mean, it was definitely stiff. I, you know, I was just out of town. 
I didn't take it into Manhattan either, which I do sometimes with some of these vehicles. But overall, I was just really impressed with the ride quality on it. I it's because that certainly makes it more useful as a daily driver in addition to being. And that was the know, thing he said. I wouldn't hesitate to use this as a daily driver. I think you know when you think about others like the Wrangler and how the previous Wrangler was yeah. not something that you would really yeah, want JK to drive was all not, the time. Was not great, right? For that. The current one is JL fabulous. One, yeah. So, you know, I think that from a from a daily driver standpoint, from a you know, this would be a good vehicle for people that maybe have an aging Xterra or an FJ, mm-hmm. something like that. I wouldn't hesitate to recommend that they replace it with this vehicle. It's just that you do have to get used to, you know, the fact that it may not have everything that you want unless you build it like that. So, you know, and obviously when I talk about the safety features, I'm talking more about the advanced safety features than anything. So um, I was just glancing to see if this even had, uh, you know, that ability to add some of these things. And there's this particular one really focuses on off-road. Yeah. And well, you know, I think the the Forerunner is one of the the older vehicles in in Toyota's lineup. For sure. In terms of the current generation. It's been around for several years now. And I would guess that. We're probably, you know, while Toyota has been making a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, adding a driver assistance features to, you know, all their mainstream products as a standard standard feature, um, you know, if it's not on the Forerunner, it's probably because it's close enough to the the current model is probably close enough to the end of its life cycle that, you know, it's better to wait to, you know, to, rather than try to engineer that stuff into this current one. They're probably incorporating it into the new one, which is probably a year or two away. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I could see this because even off-road, this is the thing is that you may, maybe you don't use those features off-road, but you certainly want it to be used, uh, you know, when you're on the road right. and, and when you're, and, and, and the reality is it. that's the way mo- you know, most people are going to buy this thing are going to be using it on the road most of exactly. the time. Exactly. Most of the time you're going to be using this thing. Now they do have what's called the TRD off-road premium. Uh, that one starts at 40000 so it doesn't have some of the cosmetic features of it, but you can probably get that a little bit more dolled up. So, you know, it's, again, it's something that you can build on the site and see which ones, you know, fit your your needs and your family style. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It sounds, sounds like, a, you know, another interesting option in that, you know, more traditional SUV uh, segment, you know, as opposed to, you know, crossovers, which is exactly. you know, where most of the market's going is in the, you know, the, the car based crossovers. And, you know, this is more of a classic SUV. It's body on frame. Right. You know, and uh, that's one of the things that I did like about it and appreciated it. It's definitely a truck, mm-hmm. you know, but that's okay. That's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. And it trucks really well. <laughs> and then if that's what you want, you got, you have options. You well, exactly. And that's, and as you say, like it's, you know, so many vehicles these days have kind of been um, softened and cushied and, and, you know, made to sort of... People want the look of something that can go off-road, but they don't... They, they know they're never going to use it that way, and so they don't right. care. But this is definitely something that um, could go off-road, probably very, very capable. I'd love to take it off-road sometime and see what it can do, because now, as I said, I, I mean, I think I put... I think I put a total of probably 800 miles on that vehicle this... Yeah, this that's, week. That's a lot of miles to put on a vehicle like that. It's a lot of miles. And again, I was... Especially a long highway trip. Right. I was, And then I drove it down, uh, I, I think last... I, I'm losing track of my days now, but I think I drove it down to um, to drop it off at, at LaGuardia when I left on, on another trip. And 
again, it was, it just performed really, really well, even in that circumstance, changed lanes easily. It had, you know, it was very dynamic. It was much more dynamic to drive than it looks. Yeah. And so while they focused on the off-road capabilities, it didn't lose a lot in the driving dynamics for, especially for what it is. It's not a race car and that's not what it was bought for. You know, this is, this, it has, it does have a fairly high, uh, you know, profile, but again, it's, it still had that, it had, it still had the driving enjoyment yeah. that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Right. And, you know, with my drive up to Boston and uh, north of Hartford, there's these big, huge hills that, you know, you go all the way up and you come all the way down, you go back up, up again and all through there, you know, that, that engine really, the V6 engine really, really held up well. Cool. Yeah, I mean, if you can put 800 miles on a vehicle like that and not come away totally annoyed at it, yeah. then, you know, they, they've succeeded. Right. You know, they, 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 it, I think that demonstrates that it's, it's a really reasonably practical vehicle. Right. And I got better acquainted with AM, FM radio again. There you go. <laughs> what, what more could you ask for? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I spent the week, the most recent week, with uh, the 2019 Nissan Leaf Plus. Uh, which debuted at um, at CES this year. Yes. Uh, so this is the newest variant of the Leaf, longer range. Uh, it's up to 62 kilowatt hour battery pack. Uh, the the second generation Leaf, when they introduced it a couple years ago, at a 40 kilowatt hour pack. So now the Leaf is finally up over 200 miles of range. Uh, official EPA rating is 226. Um, most mornings when I got up and unplugged it, um, you know, it was sitting. The the range estimate was somewhere around 220, 221. Um, and did you? How did you charge it? Uh, I just charged it. Uh, I don't have a, a, a 240 volt charger, at home, right? So I just had it plugged into uh, my uh, my home the outlet. Yeah, the oh, 110 wow. outlet. Okay. Um, you know, it the first day, you know, it came was still it was about 70 uh, percent charge, and I didn't really go anywhere that afternoon. I left it plugged in overnight, and that got it pretty much topped up. Um, That's pretty good, though. And you know, I spent the first couple of days driving mostly around town locally, right. but. Did have to take uh, a couple of longer trips. I had some, some meetings I had to go to. Uh, one day, um, drove it uh, from my home uh, near Ann Arbor to uh, Auburn Hills for a client meeting. And, you know, it was about a roughly 100, 110 mile round trip. Um, and you know, that week, the week I had it was, it, it got particularly hot. You know, it was up temperatures uh, in Southeast Michigan were, you know, 90, 91, 92 wow. degrees and very high humidity. Uh, which meant that um, I wanted to have the air conditioning on. One right. of the things I took advantage of, um, which something that most EVs have now, is the ability to precondition the cabin. So you can set a timer. You can tell it when you want to leave and what temperature you want. And while the car is still plugged in, it will um, it will figure out you know, how long it's going to take to get to that temperature. It'll turn on the air conditioning. Or in the wintertime, same thing with heating. It'll turn on the, the climate control in advance of when you want to leave and get the temperature down to that level while you're still plugged in so there's less load on the battery because it takes a lot less load to maintain a temperature than it does to you know crank it up right. or down 20 degrees right um and so that you know that doesn't so it doesn't cut your range nearly as much so i had the the cabin temperature set to 69 degrees you know when i had to leave for for my meeting and got in the car you know it was already 80, awesome. 80, over 80 degrees outside got in the car it was nice and comfortable inside and, you know, and then I, uh, you know, just left it there to maintain the temperature really nicely. So, you know, about a 110 mile round trip, I think it took about 100 and, 
thirty or so miles off the range. Off the range, okay. so it was down. By the time I got back, it was you know somewhere around um, just under under ninety miles, about 88, 87 miles, something like that. So um, it it worked really well, you know, and it, I think it really uh, you know demonstrated again to me that uh, as as it did earlier this year when I had the Kona EV in the, in the middle of February when we had a, a real cold snap, that you know that two hundred mile threshold for an electric yes. vehicle is really kind of the sweet spot, I think, for most people. Because, uh, you know, if you live in California where the weather is always fairly temperate, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, you can get away with a car that does 120, 130 miles of nominal range. You know, but when you start to get into the more extreme conditions, very hot or very cold, and you have to use the climate control to, you know, to be practical, um, you know, that takes a lot out of a battery. And, you know, having that extra margin in there you know, 220, 230, 240 miles, you know, you still easily have, you know, 140, 100 to 160 miles, you know, even if you haven't preconditioned it. And so I think, you know, it, it, it makes it useful for just about anybody for just about any trip short of a cross-country road trip. Right. You know, and for that, you know, increasingly, uh, you know, we've got networks like uh, Electrify America that are putting out, um, you know, DC fast charging networks all across the country. So if you've got, you know, 200 plus miles of range, you know, you can drive for several hours, you know, stop, have lunch, charge the car back up again and be on your way again. The issue, one issue with, uh, with the Leaf is Nissan is still uh, opting to use the Chatamo charging. Um, the Leaf Plus version does bump up the maximum charge rate from 50 kilowatts to 75 kilowatts. Um, so that's, that's a little faster uh, than before. Uh, so you can... You can still top up, fill up the battery in about the same time as the, the 40 kilowatt hour leaf uh, would do, to, even though you're putting more charge into it. Um, in fact, it might even be slightly faster. Um, but um, you know, aside from that, you know, it's it, it's a very good car. It drives well. Uh, the the, the um, kind of the one functional issue I would complain about with the leaf, and this also applies to several other Nissan vehicles, and as I talked about last time with Dan. Uh, it also applies to <laughs> a lot of other brands like, like uh, Range Rover, uh, is the, the displays that these companies choose to use for their center, center displays. Um, you know, the, you know these, these glossy displays um, you know, get a lot of fingerprints on there. You know, if you're going to force me to touch the screen, you know, use something that you know, is not going to show up fingerprints, <laughs> especially when the sun is shining in from the side, you know, through the side window of the car. You know. And then in Nissan's case, it's particularly egregious because the quality of the screens they use in a lot of their cars is very poor. Mm. It's kind of dim and low contrast. It does not look good. Uh, in a lot of conditions, it's hard to see. Um, at least, unlike Toyota's, you know, it doesn't do the rainbow effect when you're wearing my polarized sunglasses. Right. But it's still kind of a dim, dull display, so it just doesn't look good. Um, and uh, it's also not the most responsive screen. You know, sometimes you have to touch it a couple of times to get it to react, uh, which is also a, a real pain. Right. And, you know, again, you've heard me complain about touchscreens in general. If you got to use a touchscreen, at least make it responsive and, and fast. You know, don't, don't make me keep looking at the screen and hit, trying to hit that touch target multiple times to ha get an effect. Well, especially in a vehicle like the Leaf, which is designed to appeal for early, to early adopters. Right, I mean, it, you're supposed to feel like you're driving. Well, really, the, the Leaf is 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 the second generation Leaf, especially, is targeted more. They, they, they've they've got they've moved away from the early adopters because the first one was yes, kind of weird. Yes, but it still looking. is people. When I when I talk about, I'm not talking about 
innovators. Right. I'm like talking about kind of like the second step on that adoption curve. These are people that that want to have this kind of technology. I mean, they're willing to buy an electric vehicle, which is still a very, very small portion of the market. Mm-hmm. And they want their technology to feel like you're, they're driving the future, right? Right. And that's the thing is that you want to be in, in a cabin that that seamlessly works with all of your technology. Yeah, and if, you know, if, you, if you're if you trying to appeal to somebody who uses a high-end smartphone, right. you know, make that touchscreen, you know, work as well as a typical high-end smartphone exactly. and look right. as good. Right, and so even if you're, even if you're working with people that, uh, that as you say, you know, they're, it, you're trying, you're trying to get it more mainstream, even the most mainstream person wants their technology to integrate seamlessly with their vehicle these days. Yeah, like no, that, absolutely. That's a criteria. And Nissan yeah. does support Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, right. uh, like uh, the brand T. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, too, is that, you know, when you're driving that vehicle, as you say, like, you you want that, 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 that touchscreen has to work. Mm-hmm. It has to be something that functions at the highest level, in my mind. Like, they're, they're, that's not the place to compromise right. on that direct, I mean, it's, Human machine interface HMI. Yeah, no, you know? that's, that's absolutely true. And that is that; those are the places that get buyers really frustrated and have a very negative impact on ratings, on your feelings towards that vehicle, mm-hmm. on your connection—no pun intended—but on that connection to that vehicle. If you have a situation, it, it almost doesn't matter how well the vehicle functions if you're constantly fighting with that It's, it's a perception of it. You know, it is. And, 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 I mean, it really is. It is a functional thing, too. Right. It is. Know. And a safety thing, yeah. too. Because then you're then you're suddenly looking at that screen constantly as opposed to knowing that when you touch it, it's going to do what you expect it right. to do. You tap it once and it, you're going to get the response you expected. Right. Yeah. And you know uh, other you know other technology areas of the car actually do work really well. Uh, this this Leaf was equipped with the ProPilot Assist package, okay. uh, which you know is a, a single lane level two partially automated system, you know driver assist system. Right. Uh, so it does um, you know lane following, lane tracking, um, rather than you know just trying to keep you out of the lane. It's actually trying to center you in the lane. It is a hands-on system. Right. Uh, version two of ProPilot that is launching in Japan this fall and coming here uh, probably by hopefully early next year um, is actually a more advanced system that is a hands-off system like GM Super Cruise. Okay. Um, and that has a driver monitor system. This the, the current version that's on the Leaf and other Nissan vehicles in the U.S. It does not have that yet. Um, so it's a hands-on system, but it works reasonably well. Um, you know, it, it did occasionally struggle to you know recognize some lanes, but, but overall it worked pretty well. And you know, with the adaptive cruise control, which was handy uh, as I was driving up I-75 on the north side of Detroit, which is currently in the process of being reconstructed, and right. so there's <laughs> a lot of construction, a lot of some backups there, and um, you know, so that was actually a very handy feature to have in those zones. Um, you know, so it maintained a, a safe distance to the car ahead. You know, you right. were slowing down, speeding up all the time, and the e-pedal system that the Nissan has for you know heavy regen, you know, doing one foot uh, driving, so you. You, for for the most part, aside from panic stops, you don't really ever have to touch the brake pedal. It'll you can just lift off, just modulate the accelerator pedal, lift off, and you know it will bring the car to a complete stop if you take your foot all the way off the accelerator. Right. So strictly one pedal driving, then yeah. you can really get away. Which is with. great cool. for, for city. Yeah. Urban yeah. City no, driving. that's cool. Yeah. 
for sure. So, um, yeah, I thought, uh, you know, overall I liked it. Um, the, uh, the Leaf Plus that I had, you know, is pretty much loaded with just about every option that Nissan offers on it. So it was about $44,000. Wow. But you, it's still eligible for the full $7,500 federal tax credit, so that gets you down to thirty-seven, dollars uh, which is still, you know, kind of pricey for, for a compact. Right. Uh, you know, when you can buy, a, you know, a Honda Civic or, or a Nissan Sentra, you know, for, you know, low $20,000 range, you know, uh, it's... It's hard. It's still kind of hard to justify that that cost from an economic perspective. Certainly, from an environmental perspective, you know, you do have the advantage of a zero emission vehicle. But from pure economics, um, for you know, if you're looking at your total cost of ownership, that's still going to be a challenge. Right. Um, and you know, they need to do that. Fortunately, Nissan, you know, the, does offer the the base Leaf S. You know, it starts at twenty nine thousand before the tax incentives. So now you're down, you know, twenty two grand. You know, for that, for the Leaf S, you know, twenty two five. Now you're in the same price range. Of course, it's not as well equipped as a twenty two thousand dollars Civic or Sentra. Right. But um, you know, if if you want to drive an EV and you want something that's really affordable, you know, you can get you know a hundred and fifty mile range Leaf, you know, for twenty two grand still. So I think you know N- Nissan is trying to uh, you know trying to really appeal with a, to a more mainstream audience. You know, move beyond the early adopters. You know, two more mainstream customers with it with the Leaf now, um, with a with you know what's still a very practical Leaf. You know, even at 150 miles. Right. So. I can't remember exactly how much they have, how what volume they have left on their federal tax. The full federal tax. The last tax time I credit. checked, I think they were at about 140 between 140 and 150 thousand sales. So okay. Um, you know, they're probably still through the remainder of 2019 and. Maybe uh, I, I'm guessing that they will probably hit the 200,000 threshold probably in the first quarter of 2020, uh, okay. somewhere somewhere around there. And keep in mind that it doesn't just stop; it right. goes through that quarter and then it starts right grading downward. Yeah. Okay. So um, so you still have some time to get the full $7,500 tax credit. If you're in California and some other states, right. there's also additional state incentives. Right, and it's always so, worth checking that out yeah. because they do a lot of times the states will run specials or they'll have a time-sensitive opportunity, almost like an incentive to be able to, to and, and the other option is leasing, too. A lot of manufacturers right. offer really good lease de- deals on EVs, you know. So if you're not sure, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, get a two- or three-year lease, you know, and you can get some of those leases for, you know, 300 bucks a month or, or less sometimes. Exactly. I mean, some of the leases are unbelievably good. So, yeah, so it's it's good to check it out. And, and you know, as you say, for the range is something that really most people can go a couple of days yeah. in, a, in a daily driving situation without having to charge. You don't yeah. have to charge Absolutely. every single night. and Which is also very helpful if you happen to live in an apartment or something where you may yes. not have access to charging. Yep, exactly. You, know, you, can, you, know, you can stop at a, you know, uh, a DC fast charging station somewhere or... Uh, or, you know, even a level two charging station when you go shopping. A lot of places, right. you know, a lot of stores, retailers have those. Um, you know, or if you have workplace charging. Right. Uh, that's also another option. I've been petitioning for years to try and encourage people that, like, here in Manhattan, in the metropolitan area, where hundreds of thousands of people take the train in from Connecticut, Long Island, New Jersey. They live in the suburbs, and they drive from their McMansion to the train station. And if every one of those parking lots should have a row of chargers. You there. don't even need chargers, though. 
because you can drive most of the time you have to have a residency sticker to park at that train station or you can get it like somewhere close by. That's true. Yeah. If you're living in the burbs, you probably right. have a single family residence. Right. And so you can drive to and from your train station really and you know, every day. And, you know, maybe at most you're looking at a hundred to 150 miles in all five days. That's true. Yeah. So then on the weekends you charge at home yeah. and you know, and, and that's the thing is that you have an opportunity to use these vehicles. You don't need to even need to have significant infrastructure at those train stations. Yeah. You can, Good this point. is such a great, it's such, it's such a great commuter car in terms, especially if you use public transportation to be able to get to your train station and back again. And it drives me crazy that nobody markets these things like yeah. this because it's such a great solution. Yeah. They really should be promoting that more. And you know, New York state, um, I'm not sure about Connecticut. Uh, New York is one of the states that follows the uh, California zero emission vehicle mandate. So manufacturers have to sell a certain percentage of EVs in New York State. I think Connecticut. I, I think is Connecticut one of the does too. It's all. It's almost all of the Northeast states. Yeah. So, yes. All right. Well, as long as we're talking about electric electric vehicles, the reason why we're sitting here on this rooftop in Brooklyn right now. Yes, in a stunningly beautiful location. <laughs> is the New York E Prix 2019. Uh, and for those not familiar with that, um, five years ago, uh, they started a new racing series called Formula E, uh, which are single-seater, open-wheel race cars. You know, they look kind of like Indy cars, Formula One cars, except they don't burn any fuel. Yes. They're powered by batteries. <laughs> and uh, so this is the, the finale of season five that's going on this weekend uh, here in, in New York. Uh, and they're doing a double-header race. They had a race yesterday afternoon, uh, Saturday afternoon. Another race today on Sunday afternoon. Uh, there's also uh, a second, there's a support series that's been added this year that is sponsored by Jaguar, uh, the Jaguar I-Pace E-Trophy Series. Yes. Um, which uh, we saw running yesterday as well, and they'll be running uh, later today. The uh, So it's all electric racing on a street circuit uh, set up near the uh, the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal. Right, uh, down at Red Hook. Yeah, in Red Hook. Red. Um, and so... Uh, this is the first time. I mean, I've been I've been attending motorsports for 41 years now. I, I went to my first race as a kid when I was 17 or uh, when I was 12 years old in 1978. And an interesting little detail uh, about that. I was thinking I saw saw Bobby Ray Hall the other night, uh-huh. and I started thinking about the races that I've gone to. And it turns out, over 41 years of attending various races, every single race that I have ever attended in person. Bobby Ray Hall has been involved in either as a driver or a team owner, uh, because all the races I've been to have been, um, either, um, uh, IndyCar or that first one was a formula Atlantic race or IMSA races and, uh, Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan racing as teams in both IndyCar and IMSA. They run the BMW team in in IMSA, uh, WeatherTech uh, sports car championship. So he's been in, in a part of every race I've ever attended. In That's person. very cool. Yeah. Did you get a chance to tell him that? I, I did. Oh, I did. good. I, I That's awesome. I said hello to him and, and told him that little anecdote yeah. and he smiled. Yeah, That's great. And said, okay. Yeah. Well, sure. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I mean, he's, he's a very nice job. <laughs> but and meanwhile, he's thinking, of course you have, I mean, I mean everything, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, of all those races, this is the first time I have ever seen electric cars racing. Wow. And I think it is for you too. It, it absolutely is for me as well. I haven't been to what nearly as many. I haven't been to nearly as many races, unfortunately, because I do love racing. I love 
I love every, you know, I, I love, I've been to a NASCAR race with Toyota and I'm thing I love about NASCAR is that, you know, if you get into a crash and it's not too bad, you can bring the car back, put matching duct tape on it and send it back out again. But I love the delicacy of Indy and Formula One and, and, you know, it's, they all have that type of race strategy. I was, I'm such an exhaust note girl that I was very pleasantly surprised at how engaging these vehicles are. Far, far more than I expected. I mean, it's it's sort of the new sound of car racing. And it's just, you're, you're really training your ear for different things. And so instead of having that, you know, visceral, vibrating chest sort of, rumble the engine going Feel, by. Feeling that, that thunder of a Corvette C7R oh, yeah, right. rumbling by, that big V8 <laughs> exactly. engine or, or a Cadillac DPI or, or the scream of a, 9, a 9, Porsche 911. Right, you know, and, you're, and your ears vibrating and everything sort of overwhel- that overwhelming sense when the cars go by. This was was more of a, of a fine-tuning kind of thing where you could suddenly hear the gearboxes, you could hear the tires, you could hear the brakes, you could hear the crashes. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that was the thing, too, is that you could hear the, um, you know, when, when a, a when a body part was then cut, un, you know, caught underneath the tire, you could yeah. hear that noise. So it was it was a different, it was a different symphony yeah. uh, in terms of, of, of what you're hearing and listening for. Yeah, absolutely. As, as you said, you know, the, the thing about racing, you know, is watching a race in person, you know, it's always been a very visceral experience, you know, the, combination of not just seeing the cars fly by at high speed and seeing the drivers jostling for position and that's something we also saw a right. lot of a, a, a lot more of the them racing quality was see. incredible yeah um but you know the the sound uh of racing and uh, that was that was probably the thing i was most concerned about was the, the sound uh or the absence of it and my friend uh jonathan gitlin uh, who writes yes. for ars technica you know he he he's had the the best description of it you know things sound like tie fighters you know if you've ever seen a star wars movie the tie, the sound, <laughs> that that kind of whistling sound that the tie fighters make that, that's what these things sound like is they're coming at you and then they whiz by you you know it's a, it's a really amazing experience and um yeah i think you uh, you didn't get here in time yesterday for the the jaguar race right um, i did see the the i-pace race though oh did oh you, you i oh, did sorry, you, okay, I, I was so here just in time for okay. that right yes. all right so um you know the 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 I-Pace E-Trophy Series is a new support series they added this year, and Jaguar has uh, a fleet of um, modified uh, I-Paces. They're, they start they're, they start off, they're, they're built from production body shells. They take the production body shells from the plant in Austria where they build them. They ship them to M-Sport, who is uh, Jaguar's partner. It's mm-hmm. a British comp- racing company. Uh, they take uh, those, the stock body shells, they install a, an FIA-approved roll cage, uh, and then they install the, the stock battery stock motors so right. it's all the same it's all production parts of the powertrain right um and then um the suspension is basically the same except they take out the, the rubber bushings and replace them with with metal bush solid metal bushings uh, so there's a little less compliance you know improve the handling for a race car uh and then they the other thing they add is uh, uh they replace the brakes with ap racing brakes sure um but you know aside from that they look very stock uh and you know they're they're quite quick uh, even though they weigh 4,500 pounds, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're they, uh, you know, they weigh about twice as much, more than twice as much as the Formula E cars, but they're still fairly quick. I was talking to Mark Hacking, who was driving one of the cars, and said, "Yeah, max speed that they hit uh, on a lap is about 110 miles an hour." 
um, and they, they run 25 minute races. The, you know, the one thing from a spectator standpoint, the one thing missing from the Jaguars is the, the sound that mm. the, uh, that the Formula E cars make because they are using the stock powertrain. You know, the Formula E cars, most of that sound apparently is coming from the gearbox, the whine of the gearbox. Right. Um, the, uh, the, the, the Jaguars, um, don't have that because the, the, the gearbox that, you know, they're using a, a, a production gearbox, which is obviously a lot quieter. Uh, and, uh, you know, so what you hear with the Jaguars primarily is you hear the tires squealing as they go around the corner because they're using production, like street tires, they're using Michelin, uh, pilot super sport tires on there. Um, and then the brakes. So you hear, you hear the. What you'll hear is the the grinding of the um, the metallic brake pads on these racing brakes as they come into a corner. You hear the tires squealing as they come go through the corner, and then nothing until the next <laughs> corner. And you hear that you hear that cycle repeated. And I had a chance to sit down at a roundtable a couple of days ago with Brian Sellers and uh, Simon Evans, a couple of the drivers in right. the series. Uh, Simon drives for Bobby Rahal's team, yeah. uh, or ra- rather, uh, Brian drives for Bobby Rahal's team, and, and Simon drives for the New Zealand team. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that uh, Brian mentioned, you know, said that the one complaint he has about the cars is that the brakes are too good. How funny. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and that's not something you often hear from a race driver. Right. Uh, so, you know, the, and the reason why that's a, that can be a problem is in racing, especially on a tight street, corner, a street circuit like this, you know, very tight corners and not a lot of room uh, to pass. One of the places where you have passing opportunities in, in motorsports is under braking. You know, if somebody's willing to go in a little bit deeper before they hit the brakes, uh, you know, they can, they can, you can sometimes get past somebody going into a corner. And uh, typically, uh, you know, the, the race drivers, you know, in, in most cases, you know, they'll start getting on the brakes maybe 200 yards out, 200, 220 yards out from the apex of the corner, the center of the corner. And um, uh, Brian said that in these cars, they're going to about 50 to 70 yards out, wow. uh, which is not a lot of room. Right. And they're, they're basically going from the accelerator, hammering on the brakes. And, you know, the cycle is basically all on the brakes, off the brakes, turn. And then the, the electric motors have so much torque. Yes. And then it's hard, you know, all the way on the accelerator and accelerate onto the next turn, rinse and repeat. So that's why you hear that cycle of the sound of the brakes, the tires, and then the acceleration is silent. Uh, and so it's, it's an interesting, uh, uh, um, different kind of sound or la- lack of sound in some cases, uh, from these cars and, you know, talking to Jack Lambert, the lead development engineer, you know, they're, they're looking at some, some updates to the cars for next year. One of the things they're looking at is maybe dialing back the brakes a little bit. They've heard from, from the drivers, you know, to, to make a little more competitive racing. Um, and then, you know, they, they may also look at things like maybe adding some sound somewhere. Um, to, to the cars to, to add to the spectator part of it. Right. But the, the racing was great. The racing was great. And that's one of the things. So I'm host, hosted by Audi this week uh, here, and they uh, provided Alan McNish to us, who is a very, very experienced three-time Le Mans winner. Uh, he now runs the Audi Sport Abt Schaeffler team. And, you know, what's fascinating about talking to somebody like Alan is that he just has this wide range of experience. And... You know, he said yesterday that this is really, this is a league in its infancy. And so they're able to start making those, tweaking those and changing things. And as they learn, you know, it's, it's, this isn't something that's been established for 30 or 40 years. So they have this really great opportunity. 
to be able to say what's working, what's not working. Let's talk about this. Everyone wants this series to succeed. And so it's a very collaborative environment from that standpoint. And, you know, really understanding what appeals to the audience, what appeals to the drivers, what makes these races better. And I just, the, the racing part of it was just, it, it was absolutely top caliber. I mean, it was really, really cool. There was just, there was such excitement and, you know, the track that they did here was fantastic. It has this great hairpin turn as, that... As, as, as street circuits go, it, it's a good... Well, well, for, I mean, I like the fact that they that you know they they shove it into into Brooklyn, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and so it it is a very very compact track, and so you know, but the hairpin turn that they had right at the spectator location to be able to see that was actually a great opportunity for passing as well and crashing. As well, we, we saw, saw. <laughs> we saw a lot of both of those. <laughs> so, uh, but it, it's just again, I I was just very very impressed with with the level of of experience, the level of people they have. These are some of their best people, best people in the, in the racing industry that are involved in, in something like this. And and the quality of racing was absolutely top-notch. Yeah, and, you know, I think I mentioned, um, you know, this, this year, Season 5 of uh, Formula E, uh, they launched a new Generation 2 car. One of the, the detail, one of the interesting details about the first generation cars that they ran for the first four years um, is – at that time, you know, the battery technology was still not where it needed to be uh, in terms of range and capacity. Um, and so what they ended up doing, you know, they're 45-minute races. And the, the first-generation cars had a 30-kilowatt-hour battery pack, lithium-ion battery pack. And because they couldn't figure out a way to safely do a quick change of the battery or, you know, fast charge the battery, what they ended up doing was they actually had two cars for every driver. Oh, wow. And so at about 22 minutes, 23 minutes into the race, the car, the drivers would actually come in, pit, hop out of the car, and hop into a second <laughs> identical car that was fully charged, uh, and then continue the race and finish off the race. Crazy. Um, which, yeah, which is kind of crazy. This year, the Generation 2 cars have a, a larger 60-kilowatt-hour battery pack, so they're able to go the full race distance on a single charge, 45-minute uh, race. The races are 45 minutes plus one, one lap after that. So once you hit the 45-minute timer, they do one more complete lap, and then that's it. Um, so, you know, you I think you heard some interesting things from Alan about the, the race strategy. Yes. Uh, you know, tell, tell us a little yeah. bit more about that. So I asked him, you know, how does this differ from a traditional gas-powered or even hybrid-powered engine? And he said, you know, it really doesn't. Racing's about efficiency. Racing is about maximizing the efficiency of that engine to minimize pit time and and you know originally to you know to try and not use a lot of fuel but this is about getting to that end because as we saw at the very end we're looking at there they were left like four percent battery you know i mean these so were somewhere down to like one and two one two percent these are really really low low you are talking low single digits that you're left with and one of the interesting things from a spectator standpoint is on the big screens that are all around the track, which, you know, on a street course, you need that because you can only see a relatively small right. portion of the track. But they, they were cycling through, so, you know, they show you the action on other parts of the track. They also show you the standings, you know, what, what it, where, you know, where, where are the drivers, what's the, the sequence of the drivers. And they would cycle through and they would show you, you know, uh, you know they would show you the, the gap between, you know, each place, you know, second place, half a second, second, half a second behind the leader and so on. But then it would cycle through and you would see, how much battery was left, right. which is something you don't ever see with these right. other cars. You don't see how much fuel they have left in the tank. Right. They were showing us live 
you know, okay, they're at 15% left. <laughs> they're at 14, 13. The last couple of laps, they were down to like 3, 4%, 2%. I mean, it's crazy. And on that last lap, some of them were down to 1%. Yeah. It, I mean, so that's the thing is that, it, it, again, it adds, it's, it's, the excitement is there. The emotion is there. It's just different. You're getting different information. But it was really cool. So he said, you know, Alan said basically that a lot of the strategy is very much the same in it's still a race. And I think that, you know, he was very pleasantly surprised at how exciting that race was yesterday as well. And Nissan won. We should make that point. Uh, so congratulations yep. to them. Uh, but it was just fantastic to see BMW is here. So it's BMW, Jag, Nissan, uh, uh, Audi. Audi. Uh, Mercedes has a stand. Yeah, they um, Mercedes is joining the series next year, okay. next season, uh, as is Porsche. Porsche is also joining oh, the series next year. Oh, right, because the Taycan was here. Yes. We got a chance to see that Yeah, as they well. did some demo laps around the track yes. with the Porsche Taycan. Uh, uh, Taycan, sorry. Yeah, yes. Uh, prototype. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, right now it's, it's uh, Jaguar, uh, BMW, um, Audi, Nissan, uh, Venturi, uh, and DS, which is a division of PSA, Peugeot, Citroën. Um, so they are they are the factory teams, and then there's also some customer teams as well right. that are, are using motors. And another another thing that has changed over the years, originally the, the, the first year or two of Formula E, they, uh, they had not only a spec chassis, so everybody was running the same car, but they also had the same um, motors and batteries and everything. Um, over time, they have changed and allowed manufacturers to come in and design their own powertrain. So they still use a stock uh, chassis and battery. Everybody uses the same battery, but um, the manufacturers design their own motors, their own power electronics, and their own gearboxes. And their own regenerate, regenerating. And they're, yeah, the regen regenerative brake system, right. which is part part of that drivetrain. Right. Um, and so you know they have some you know they have some various approaches to it. One of the things that's unique about Nissan, at least for this year, is that they actually, rather than using a single motor and a differential in, in the rear axle. They are actually have a two-motor setup, you know, so they can do a little bit of torque vectoring, um, which uh, they have changed the rules for next year. They're, they're banning that uh, because there's concern that that's going to, you know, lead into things like tra uh, traction control, which they don't want. They want right. the drivers, you know, to stay involved. Uh, so <laughs> next year, Nissan will be switching to a single-motor setup, but for now, it's still a two-motor. And they're limited uh, in, during race conditions uh, normally to 220. 200 kilowatts, uh, which is about uh, uh, about 300 or about 280 horsepower, roughly. Um, and uh, during qualifying, they get to run 250 kilowatts. Okay. Uh, so they get a little more power during qualifying, right. a little bit less, you know. So that they, they're trying to balance it, you know, so that you you have enough, you know, for good speed. Uh, and these these cars are, are running fast. I mean, they're getting you know 130, 140 miles an hour right. at some parts of the track. So they're they're not slow at all. Um, you know they're fairly lightweight. They weigh about nine hundred kilos, so about two thousand pounds. Is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean the, the acceleration. Oh you, my god! You see these guys come out of a corner, <laughs> and, and you know just... the, you see this. You see the speed, and you hear that that gearbox whine, that Tie Fighter sound right. as it spools up as they're accelerating, and then they get on the brakes and it winds down again. It it was just it was incredible to see yeah. it in action. And again, that's the thing is that you're just it's. There's so much appeal to this, ve these, 
this racing that I was I really honestly wasn't expecting yeah. as much. And it's and it's great because you can actually carry on a conversation. You can talk to each other and say, "Wow, did you see that? That was amazing!" Without needing you know earplugs and and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the first time in a long you know? time I've been to a race right. without earplugs. Right. I mean, it was really you know, and the there's not a lot of flammable materials around. You know, it was like a it's just a very very different atmosphere, but really really good, really good. Yeah. Another another thing that I think uh, also contributes to the, the good racing uh, is the the aerodynamic limitations. You know, one of the issues with uh, Formula One cars, uh, as, you know, the, they have these crazy aerodynamics, you know, big wings right. and everything, um, and because of that, you know, it creates a lot of turbulence behind the cars and right. it makes it very hard for the cars to follow closely behind each other. They rely heavily on downforce for for high cornering speeds. Um, here, you know, on the types of circuits that run Formula E on these tight street circuits, the downforce isn't important, as important, and the the cars themselves, it's it's a fairly, they're very limited in the, the aerodynamics. They have a big diffuser underneath that generates but some downforce at the back. But the wings, you don't have these big massive wings like you do on an F1 car or an Indy car. Right. And so because of that, the uh, the cars are able to run much tighter together, much closer yes. together. So, you know, because they're, they all have the same, you know, same amount of power and, you know, relatively low downforce configuration, they're able to run very close together. And that contributes to that, that tight racing. And, you know, they can fight for position all the time, which is, you know, makes it really exciting for the spectators. And I think, you know, probably makes it exciting for the drivers as well. Exactly. Because, you know, they, they actually get to battle each other. Uh, you, know, and, you know, these people are very competitive. Which you know, that's that's what they want. They want to be able to get in close. Well, I, and I think that's an, another aspect of it. You're absolutely right, Sam. Is that the the skills of the drivers is at the highest level here, and and it's, I mean, that the the racing part of it is still so competitive yeah. that it's, you know. I get there may be people, purists, that say this isn't racing. It is. This is 100% racing. Yeah. And it's just the new sound of it. And it's really, really cool. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, ACO, the organization that organizes Le Mans and the, uh, the, the uh, World Endurance Championship, uh, you know, they are launching a, a, a new top class next year, their hypercar class, uh, which is gonna, still going to include hybrid uh, powertrains. But for the next generation, they've already said for the next generation, uh, in the 2024 or 25 time frame, they want to go to electric vehicles. They want to go to zero or to zero emission vehicles, which could be battery electric or it could be fuel cell. Right. And you know, having having watched this race now, you know, and seeing the evolution over the last few years of Formula E, going from you know having to run half the race, swap to another car, yeah. you know, to now running a full 45 minutes at very high speeds, um, you know, and be very competitive. I can I can see and you know now we're starting to get technologies that are coming to market like the Taycan that's going to have 350 kilowatt charging capability. I can see the potential for five years down the road, getting to a point where you know uh, we have you know Le Mans prototypes, you know car, cars running 24 hours Le Mans that are maybe charging it to 800 kilowatts, um, or even doing a battery swap setup, you know because that's that's a that's a technology that has evolved something like that so you can come in have a quick pit stop you know do a driver change change tires get the car topped back up again and have it back on the, the track and running uh you know for 24 hours you know in, in, a, in a reasonable fashion i can that's that is now a realistic proposition i think and 
I think, a very exciting proposition. It is. And one of the things to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, people say, why race? Why be involved in this? This is their lab. This is their experimental lab. This is where they get the opportunity to develop technology and features and things like battery swapping that will then come to market. They will be available then in vehicles. And, you know, this is their space program. This is, these are opportunities for manufacturers to invest in technology that they, you know, that they need to try out. And then they're going, they will eventually transfer some of this over to that mainstream buyer and make these vehicles, uh, these, you know, incredibly environmentally friendly vehicles more accessible to the general public. And so it's, you know, this is a little bit of what Alan was talking about yesterday, just in terms of saying, you know, this is where we get to try stuff out. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, that efficiency is such an important part of racing, especially endurance racing. Um, you know, and, you know, mo most people think of, of racing as just driving fast. Right. But, you know, there's there's a classic line about, about racing, you know, to finish first, first you must finish. Um, you know, and so that means it's got to be reliable. But also, you know, especially in longer distance racing, you know, the time that you spend in the pits, you know, if you, you know, like say, for example, at Le Mans, you know, um, go back to something I heard several years back from the Corvette racing team. When when they first started running the Corvettes at Le Mans in, 19, in 1999, um, those first couple of years, they were running about 10 laps between pit stops. 10 laps oh my gosh. between pit stops. I mean, it's a long track. It's an, right, right. It's yeah, an eight no, and a half I mile that. track. Right, yeah. But they were, they were getting 10 laps per stint, um, and then they had to come in and refuel. Right. By 2010, they were going 14 laps. Yeah. They had improved yeah. their efficiency by 40%. It's amazing. And that makes a huge difference. I mean, if you're in the pits for a minute, a minute and a half, getting fuel, getting tires, um, you know, that makes an enormous difference. Right. Um, you know, added up over, over the course of a 24-hour race or even a, a four-hour race or a two-hour race. The time you spend in the pits is time you're not on the track exactly. racing. And so uh, efficiency is, is really as important in racing as it is or as, as, as pure speed. But if you can take that, if you can figure out how to make the car more efficient so you, you can run longer without refueling it or recharging it, that also has a huge benefit to consumers, especially with electric vehicles. So if you can figure out how to do that in an electric race car, get that efficiency right. out of an electric race car, uh, you know, and you know, in the case of these cars, because they have to run 45 minutes and you know, they're trying to get there, you know, use as much of that charge as they can, because if they have to, you know, if they're running low on charge, at, you know, in the last few laps of the race, and they have to back off, they're not going to win. Right. So you want to you want to maximize how you know how far you can go on that amount of charge, that amount of energy you have, and if you can take that and then translate that to production cars, now you can have a production car that has a longer range, or you can have a car that has a 200 mile range, but instead of a 60 kilowatt hour battery, you can reduce it to a 50 or 40 kilowatt hour battery that dramatically reduces your cost because that battery is the most expensive piece of that car. Easily. And so there, you know, there's huge potential for consumer benefits as well as for better competition. Right. So they're really learning, you know, they're learning a lot from a spectator standpoint, from making these races even more engaging, that from a driver standpoint, I mean, everyone is still learning in this. And at the end of the day, the consumer is really going to benefit from all of these learnings and from all of this experience. And that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, I'd say let's uh, call this one a show. And um, thank you, Rebecca, 
for uh, joining me up here on the roof this morning. Thank you for having me. It's amazing. Yeah, beautiful day. <laughs> and uh, time to pack up and go hit the track and watch some more electric cars racing exactly. around. Exactly. All right. Thanks, everybody. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Hey, everybody. It's Sam. Hope you enjoyed that. And now stay tuned for Alan McNish talking about the strategy for driving a Formula E car. Boosting and acceleration, which how we use it is basically flat out. <laughs> and how you recover energy in the in the braking and the coasting phases. So and where, so, where are they lifting? Like, so coming to this got, point, like, where would you lift at that point to post into it? Uh, it depends on where we are in the race and, and things, but I know it's not far away from where we are in here. So you've got this situation a bit. Who's driven the e-tron? Yes. I have. Right. With the e-tron, you know that when you brake, you recuperate energy into right, the battery. Yes, yes. When you Brilliant. lift off the gas, yes. or lift off the yeah. electric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's accelerated. That's very interesting. He just pays a big bucks. Because that's what it is. So when you lift off, then you also recuperate, and also you can do it manually, which right. is a driver. So right. we've got a, a system which gives an element of automation to that however the driver has to follow it so it, it kind of understands what it needs to do and it's predicting where it needs to go but the driver's got to follow and if the driver doesn't follow then it doesn't work how quickly so, does the system switch from output to input well no it's, it's always guidance it's not aut automated in that respect it's guidance what we and so therefore we've got this situation where the driver has got to really be careful and so if he gets into a a wheel-to-wheel -wheel fight, like a dog fight, if you think back to Sebring, when, that is negative. Because when you are blocking someone, say into the hairpin, you go to the inside, someone goes to your outside, and you keep the position. But by doing that, when you come out, you need more energy right. to accelerate out the corner. Sure. So therefore, you actually penalize yourself, not at that instant, but five, six, seven laps down the line. And so, this is where it becomes quite a complex situation. So we're we're given a bit of information there. The car obviously does it its bit, but uh, at the same time, every time when you put energy back in, you're also increasing the battery temperature. And for all of the manufacturers, for all of the teams, we've all got the same battery, and it has got its threshold. And uh, so therefore, that is an area where we're trying to control through our software how we put the energy back in and uh, to make sure that it's at the smoothest rate possible, but also at the one where we get the least compromise in the last lap of the race. So how can you adjust on the fly if you get into a situation where you're using more? The drivers have to adjust on the fly. Oh yeah. So is the, and this is remedial and I apologize, but is the recuperation system different? So the battery is the same, but how you're recouping? Yes. Right. Just to go back. The chassis is the same for all. Okay. The brakes are the same for all. Okay. The uh, battery is the same for all. Okay. Where our IP is in the electric motor. Right. The uh, the inverter. Right. And the gearbox, and then the software. Okay. And this is the point. So is those can be proprietary. Those are the areas where we put a lot of investment in. Right. So during the season, you excuse me, you cannot adjust any of the hardware. So the physical hardware, that's sealed and that's it. Wow. And you get two sets for the whole year. Wow. And if you need a third set, you get a huge penalty. 
Wow. So therefore you need two sets. Right. And then through this through the season, what we do is we develop the software. Okay. And that is a learning that's just constantly ongoing. And it's done in the simulator back right, in Neuburg. Right, sure. And then it's transferred onto the test track and then it gets onto the race. Right. And you're tweaking that algorithm constantly and the learnings from there. So is this like F1 where you only have so many test days or can you test as, as often as you want? We've got a total of 15 test days. And then as Audi, because we supply Virgin, we're a customer team of ours, then because of that, then we are allowed an extra seven days. So in total, we've got 22. That's it. So how much is it having Virgin as a customer team, and how much how much feedback do you get? Like to, they don't they run the same. I assume they run the same software as you. That you yeah. Give them so are they helpful? Are they working as like a one team? It's not one team, no, it's two teams. We've got to beat them. It's right. my job to beat them. It's their job to beat me. Right. <laughs> but do you, but do you get good tech feedback from like, Being very frank about it, when we started the discussion with them, I looked at it this way, that it's better to have four Audis on the grid than two. They are one of the top teams, without question, and if one of the top teams prefers to come away from being a manufacturer association to a customer of us, it's an absolute feather in the cap. At the same time, uh, it means that we do have internal competition, which is natural, just in the same way as Lucas and Daniel have that. However, it's positive. And this is the key point, is that Internal competition, as you know, can be destructive or it can be positive. For us, it was set out right at the beginning, boundary lines. We are racing each other. We are not going to move over and say, after you, and vice versa, they are not going to either. However, from an overall development perspective, then more information is better. Simple fact. And uh, so I think at the moment it's been a very successful, just what I said in the press conference yesterday. You know, we're here as to win the championship. However, in a very positive way for Audi, we've got uh, second and third in the championship because they are sitting in third. So I'm actually looking at making sure we win the championship, but I'm also got a bit of an eye on these guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's not not looking like an Audi or even a Tachito race. No. Is that, that, that must be helpful for the championship if, yeah. if Jeb and Andre aren't up front. No, it, it's status quo for the team's championship because Jeb's ahead of... Oh, is it, yeah. is it, catch, so is it catchable? We're, we're, yeah, it's catchable. We're in a better position than they are because uh, Daniel is ahead of Jeb, who's ahead of uh, Lucas, who's ahead of Andre. So they're third and fourth, uh, sorry, second and fourth, and we're first and, and third. But I think really it's status quo, if I'm being very frank. And the drivers' championship, then, you know, our fight is with Jeb. 100%. And so there are two, three. But now you're a manufacturer, you're not supposed to care about driver's championships or that team. It's about both. We set out a goal. We set out a goal at the beginning of the season, and that was to be competitive, to win races, and to be competitive, to be in the fight at the last race here in New York for both drivers and teams championship. And then obviously you go for the win. And the reason we set that out, because it sounds yeah, easy, was last year we arrived here and we were not in contention for the drivers. We were out of it before we got here. Mm, and so therefore, we've actually done part of our job. Now we've got the big part to do, which is the, you know, both the drivers and teams. Right. But uh, so far, we're in the fight for both. And strategically, and I go to the strategy meeting in an hour and 15 minutes, 
I know that both car crews will be thinking of themselves. I've got to think of Audi, but also I've got to be careful that I don't gain for one driver and penalise the other. Because Daniel is only 12 points off third in the championship. So we're looking, Lucas is, can win. Daniel can still be right there in the championship. So it's it's a bit of a juggling act where your kids are supposed to win at Christmas and you're trying to get the prezzies to beat out. It's a Venus and Serena sort of thing. You know, where you're playing, where well, I'm your not sure siblings. I classify Daniel and Lucas <laughs> and Serena, to be honest. I'm trying to make, keep it gender neutral. We're in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's good, though. Just to say about them. This is one fortunate thing from my point of view because you mentioned Dindo and Tom earlier on. With teammates, it can either gel or it can be a war. Right. And especially when it gets down to a competitive situation, it's right. very easy for it to be fractious and a bit of a war. Uh, with these two, they kind of like a married couple, and they do work well. And yes, there's a little bit of an abrasion every now and then. Last year on Saturday into turn six, I remember. <laughs> but it all worked out, and so it, that's a big positive, I think, for us as a team. Right. Is that we've got two guys that are very, very competitive, but they also understand the bigger picture, and uh, they can work well to try and develop everything forward together. So when you were talking about that strategy, yeah. how much carryover and carry across can you do from when you're driving a more traditional vehicle versus electric? And sort of conservation and using, right? Principles are the same. If I go back to when we were racing in the American Le Mans series, right. Laguna Seca 2007. My Absolutely. World Superbikes are there this weekend. A friend track. of mine was standing at the course. <laughs> Love that. Aim for the trait. We, yeah, but which one? <laughs> the that big was one. The thing because Dario didn't tell me which one. <laughs> he told me aim for the tree I get there and he was like, oh, <laughs> at all, of course. But in that race, we had to make about an hour and 20 minutes on a tank of gas. Wow. And we'd never, ever tried that, never done anything. It was the only way to win the race. And it was sort of learning as you go along what we could do to achieve it and we did achieve it and that's exactly the same philosophy as now right you don't have enough to go flat out so you've got to try to work out how you do it so the right. principles are the same the okay. principles of the, of the way you develop are the same it just happens to be the technology is different right and so i think in that respect we're in a very good situation here at the circuit and also back at home right to the point that the majority of the people that are in design and development of the e-tron fe05 were in our Le Mans program in our r18 our r15 our r10 our r8 and right back when they were in touring car for some of them and so stefan dreyer is an example who was a junior when the r8 started in alms in 2000 is head of our drivetrain program which covers dtm internal combustion yeah. engine and it covers the electric engine here brilliant so Again, principles are the same. It's just what you're actually doing and the way you're doing it. Right. Is, is the approach like the old John Wire, like win as slowly as you can? Like, just this is... I never went for that. I always went, win as hard as you can, drill them into the ground. <laughs> <and> <laughs> so, Alan, how many, how many people are involved with the, with the program in Germany? Uh, we, we cover across between Formula E and DTM. So you take uh, Stefan as a good example. Then he covers off both our axle, Luffler who did the chassis, 
uh, in our LMPs and DTM, then they cover off both. So it's not dedicated to only one or the other. There's a lot of cross uh, party. Uh, even here at the circuit, some of them jump between DTM and, and bank. Now that the series is picking up, yes. how does it feel compared to other The way I'd say it is, the sport's a little bit like a child. It's just a kindergarten. It's five years old. So if you know a child of five years old, you've got to let it make its mistakes, do its thing, find out what it likes, what it doesn't like, but you've also got to maybe guide it on occasions. And that's where we are. So, you know, we've gone to the party and everybody's all excited and there's plenty of cake and everything else. And we just got to try to make sure that we control the growth and development of the championship. In terms of what I like about it, I have to say, it's got a, like a youthful enthusiasm. You know, you're, they've came here as a, as a promoter and as a championship and they've said, right, okay, we're going to have a battery electric vehicle championship. No one's done it before. So therefore, do we have to follow the historic ways of doing things? No, we don't. And then looked at it with a completely open eyes. And I, I would say this championship is designed for now. Without necessarily thinking, well, we did this 10 years ago, and that didn't work, and this sort of thing. So they've got a very open-minded attitude. That, I say, has got some uh, trials and tribulations, but it has been one of the breaths of fresh air that I personally have found about it. You know, when I say trials and tribulations, qualifying, the way they set out the qualifying groups means that if you're in the front of the championship, you're in the first group. The first group is always a difficult group because the circuit conditions are bad. So it's slow. So you qualify mid to the back of the grid. And you think, well, but I'm better than that. I should be at the front. I'm, but you qualify there. And what that does is it creates a situation coming into the last race. Eight drivers can fight for the title. So it is a breath of fresh air, and I love it as a fan, as a team principal, I've got to be honest with you, that one I think. <laughs> but you've got to take the bigger view, and uh, with that I think that's in a very good position when I said about growing the championship. All of the manufacturers sit down and we have common discussions, common views in, I would say, 90% of the way we think the championship go should go, and how it should evolve. And we're working with the promoter and the organising body how to do that. Well, in terms of that, we're, you know, we, we come to some fantastic cities. We're going to new markets, so for next year we're going to South Korea to serve, as a, just as wow. a perfect example. I think we've got to always go to areas that are relevant to us, and that's a, I would say, a very big factor. New York's huge. US is the second biggest market for Audi. It's a very important market, I think, for the electric vehicle and the transitions for that. And so we've got to make sure that we are relevant there. We've got to make sure we're relevant in the technology we can develop in the series. And that can then be translated onto the road car because that's one of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons why we are racing here. In terms of uh, the bigger picture, I would say we've got to be aware that our sport is changing, the world is changing, and we're not immune to that. We can't just be the same as we were before. We've got to realise that now people's attentions are on different things. It's uh, now you've got to 
be much more considerate to where you go and where you race and how you race to the point that it takes you know about 18 days I think to build this up and take it out and in future the championship is looking how to reduce that because that's for the local environment how you put something into the local environment as well so there's some bigger picture apart from just the racing around about the circuit we're all invested into that because I think we have to be invested into it because of you know the way that motorsport ha has to be a trendsetter but also to follow the, the ways that uh, we're going in the world things that went into it but this whole concept about storing lost energy and then using it again I love it, but was it actually going to work and was it going to be a benefit and then the first time you drive it you realize the benefit but it was that out-of-the-box thinking and, the, and this is where I think it is exciting for us now because there's a huge rate of change you know, my racing career started in 1981 1991 2001 it was all still gasoline engine car 2006 was the first time we ever raced with anything that wasn't gasoline first international race that was won by anything apart from a gasoline engine car was Sebring 2006 then within 12 years from that date we had gone from using something other than gasoline to hybrid to full battery electric vehicle it's you know it's just like a massive swing from what you've had for 80, 90 years beforehand. Not to say that that's all gone, but it's just that that change is so quick, and that's exciting. Because what's it going to be in another 15 years' time? What can you think about happening? You know, if you look at the Geneva show and CES and everything else, it's all combining. It's not just the car industry. It's everything's all combining. And there's huge changes, and I like that. I really do like that. So going, sorry, going back to the environment. Um, it's very interesting that you have fan boost and you have really great fan interactions here. How do you see that expanding? Is, is there any yeah. more room for expansion it's around a, that? It's a good point. Uh, fan boost no is something like that I find odd in a way because you know you, your performance can be assisted or assisting someone else, your competition, by people that you've never met around the world. Um, but the very good thing about fan boost as well is that it tells everybody the race is on. And so even on the Audi MyNet service, because of this man, it's up there on the front page when it's got the daily news of everything that's going on. It's saying, by the way, vote for Lucas, vote for Daniel. We're racing in New York this weekend. It's a championship decider. Come on. And the whole company then gets a little bit behind it. So how it expands on a sporting point, I think we've got to be careful yeah. not to have too much. It seems to have more of an impact on the race than Bambi's ever has. Never seems to have like affected races. Like it gets crazy. It has affected races. Yep. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.